Welcome to Trail and Error, a look at the trail running world from the podium to the pack with your hosts Jay Grady and Tristan Stevenson. We decided to start our own trail running podcast to talk to the people we find interesting in the trail and ultra running world, to find out their highs and lows, their momentous successes and their abject failures, and to perhaps give us all a little bit of inspiration to take on some adventures and challenges of our own. We'll be speaking to runners and athletes, race directors and coaches, sports nutritionists and doctors to get the best out of our own running and hopefully yours too. We hope you enjoy the podcast and if you do, please hit like and subscribe via all the normal podcast feeds. But for now, let's get on with the show. Hello and welcome to another episode of Trail and Error. Uh, this week, Tris and I are joined by race director Shane Oley from Aurea Events. Shane, welcome to the show. Hi, it's uh, great to be here. Yeah, thanks ah, for joining thank us. Um, kind of, I, 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 you, you popped up on my radar a long time ago, but I didn't know who you were, uh, if that makes sense. So... Dragon's Back obviously is is one of well not obviously but Dragon's Back is one is one of the stable events one of your uh, race events that you organise and that one is kind of well known by everyone and then um, I guess Cape Wrath is another one that that popped up on my radar so you were in the Man in the Shadows for a long time for me I didn't didn't know much about anything else and then slowly you've come to prominence I guess as as the race has established itself. Uh, and you were a, a, a mythical creature for a while as well. And then, um, thankfully, um, one of our mutual acquaintances, uh, Julie, um, finally put us in touch. So thank you, Julie, for this interview. Um, I guess, really, from from a, a perspective, it, I guess it'd be interesting for us to know how you started with all this. So you've got a huge... Um, I think I, the last time I counted five, five or six, six events on the go at the moment. Um, how did you start? How did you get into all this? Um, so if I rewind a very long time, it's, you know, 15 years ago plus now I, um, had just finished, uh, running my first business, which was called Planet Fear. Um, that kind of ended in a bit of a bomb it, it died a death and it was a very painful experience for me um i was running lots already by that point um and uh one of the uh, companies that i knew rat race adventure i'd done and won some of their events they said to me oh well shane maybe you've got some time you know we could do with some people helping us plan and organize our events and i took on a little bit of freelance work um, and over about two years, became a, a freelance race director for Rat Race, and 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 I've worked for some other companies as well. But most of my work, where I cut my teeth, if you like, was with Rat Race, and I learned an awful lot from from the team there, uh, Gary Thompson, Jim Me at the time. Uh, but I then stopped working on events, and I didn't ever think I would go back to doing that. Uh, then in 2011, I was working as a consultant for Berghaus, um, had a very short little project, and they were keen to develop their own event. I was reading Feet in the Clouds at the time. I read the amazing chapter about the Dragon's Back race, basically put two and two together and 
persuaded Berghaus as a spin-off from this consultancy work to sponsor a resurrected Dragon's Back race in 2012, which would have been, or was the 20th anniversary of the original race. Yeah, 20 years on. So Dragon's Back, um, six days. I'm going to run through Dragon's Back because I think for people that don't know it, I think it's it's worth knowing. Um, So as far as I know, and please feel free to correct me, uh, Dragon's Back. Six days, 380 kilometers or 236 miles in old money, 17,500 meters of climb or elevation change, 57,000 feet again. Conway Castle to Cardiff Castle. That all sounds insane. It's averaging 63K a day. But the interesting thing that I found was, was and, and this is something I've been chatting to some friends about and we've been kind of talking about this point. It's a mountain race, not a trail race. Quite specifically, your your big races are defined as mountain races and not trail races. Yeah. Um, that and 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 that leads us on to an, another point that I kind of want to chat about, which is um, in in a in a very kind of exploratory way. Um, these events are not aimed at being inclusive, <laughs> but in in a good way. Be careful um, with that language in this day and age. last time we spoke about this we spoke about this with Stephen Cousins and I used the amazing uh my amazing language skills uh and said it wasn't inclusional but you corrected me so it's not inclusive um but that means I think in this context that means it's not for sort of casual runners to come and plod around right it is for it's not a guaranteed finish that's what I think he's meant by that okay so there's some really really interesting points I'd like to unpack from that so Fantastic. first of all, um, I, I strongly feel that for real adventure, you need uncertainty in the outcome. Um, I also strongly feel that quality races have a, a, a pure logic to their course. And the, the races that become very famous, the courses are just good and I don't know, you look at Hard Rock or UTMB, you know, there's a reason why those courses are so... They're journeys, aren't they? They are A to B. Exactly. So Dragon's Back Race, Cape Wrath Ultra, and Skyline Scotland races, those routes are logical. So Dragon's Back Race, it's, you know, north coast to south coast across the mountains. So they're not synthetic, are they? They're not being... They're not artificially... Yeah. So they're not arbitrary. They're not figure of eight loops and there's no obstacle courses. You know, we don't make anything artificially difficult. You just need to get to A to B. And it happens that the train in between is really, really, really tough. <laughs> so I think, yeah, you need to have uncertainty. The purity and integrity of your running challenge is important. Um, and then inclusiveness is interesting. So by their very nature, these events are hard. Um, we've actually literally in the last week done a quite a big update on the Dragon's Back website and also Kate Rath is going to follow on Monday next week. Um, we've always transported participants um, who have been unable to finish a day and they time out. The next day we've inserted them at roughly the halfway point. Non-competitively. Non-competitively. So they carry on, they have the journey, they effectively can do, you know, six half days and they can have this amazing holiday running holiday in wales or scotland and we've always done that 
but we've not really advertised that. Mm. And we're changing the ethos of the event a little for 2023 edition onwards in that we are guaranteeing we'll do that insertion. So you can come to Dragon's Back, no intention of ever completing the full course, but you know whatever happens every day, you'll get dropped into that halfway point. And actually, you've still got a massive challenge to run some pretty big days in some pretty amazing places. And you still get all the camaraderie and adventure of the overnight camps and the experience and the big castle finishes and starts. And I think that makes the event much more inclusive Albeit they're still pretty hard days. So, are you going to call it the Dragon's Belly? We're call- we, we talked a lot about the <laughs> we talked a lot about the name. We're calling it the Hatchling. Okay, yeah, yeah. And we're actually going to give all the finishers of the Hatchling. Anyone who does something every day and gets to the finish gets a, a Hatchling trophy, so that they can grow that into a dragon. Exactly, they can grow it Got into it. a dragon. <laughs> Brilliant. How many people do you have starting um, and typically finishing? Um, something like the Dragon's Back and, and Cape Wrath. So um, Cape Wrath this year, we had just under 300 starters. Um, finish rate was a little bit lower than normal. It was about 35%. In the past, it's been more like, a, well, it's been 62% on average for the three previous editions. And this year, it's effectively flipped on its head. What did you put um, that down to? It was weather. So um, the first three editions of Cape Wrath Ultra have basically been wall-to-wall sunshine. It's been as, as easy as it could be. And this year it rained every day for eight days. Um, it was hard. It was a really hard edition for everybody, crew, participants. And similarly with the Dragon's Back race, um, typically the finish rate is about 50%. And then last year it was 24%. And it was the opposite problem last year for Dragon's Back. The first three days were really, really hot. Scorchio, wasn't it? Scorchio, yeah. It was really tough. Mm. Yeah. I remember, but, um, I, would have been, I guess it would have been around the time of the first edition, someone sent me a link to the, dra- uh, to the Kate Wrath trailer, if you like. Um, and I was like, wow, look at this. And I, had, I don't think I'd ever run an ultra before. <laughs> and given the distance involved and the time, it inspired me to jump in at the deep end. I was like, well, if people are doing that, then, I mean, 100 kilometers doesn't seem like that bad. So I, that was that sort of started my ultra career. Um, cool. First mistake. Yeah. <laughs> big mistake. That, so, um, you know, still haven't got up and actually run Kate Rath, but it's definitely on the list. I will do it at some point. But, um, yeah, I have to probably tell you that it was it was an inspiring race to me having never even oh. run it or, or been up in that part of scotland before well thank you that's that's really brilliant to hear and i do i do want my my events to inspire people and particularly particularly things like dragon's back cape wrath northern traverse now you know they are they are adventures um and actually when i've reflected and i'm possibly brutally honest about my own running adventures um well i've just said the two words i actually like adventure the running enables adventure and i, I you know i listened to some of your previous podcasts and oh no and you still no, came good. on <laughs> no, they were good they were good um and um some some of your guests and yourselves you can really get into the details of splits and times and positions and 
the evolution of a runner over time and you know my my kind of detailed understanding of races and results and the running community i just i just don't have that and i think it re- actually reflects my passion is is adventure um and i've created events that reflect that um so you know as i was you know well i think i've kind of said what i need to say you know that that <laughs> just that, that is how dragon's back and and cape wrath are they are big adventures it feels like my next step is well i'm doing a multi-day thing hopefully in spain with stephen cousins next year okay um and that's really where i see the next challenges coming i think the races for me will always be as in so when i say a race i mean literally what we're talking about kind of the single or the two-day 36 hour Mm -hmm. 48 stuff um but that that's kind of a a very specific kind of event but it has a, a defined start and finish. Whereas I think the multi-day stuff, the way I feel about it is it, it, almost, I don't want to, you know, jump on the bandwagon with the adventure, but that's how it kind of feels. It's it's like, it's how your body responds day after day. You, you don't know what tomorrow is going to feel like in the day after that. And it's all mm-hmm. cumulative and things can go really wrong and still yeah. recover. Um, so it's just that expansion of a race into multi-days. That's the bit that excites me now, if I'm honest. Yeah, and it is, it's very interesting. And it, the challenge is very multifaceted. Um, there's clearly a huge mental ele- element to, you know, keeping going every day and getting going when you feel sore, you know, the following morning. Just surviving camp is, for a lot of people, that's really challenging. And- are there murders taking place? Not <laughs> runners? Is this it? Like <laughs> knives at night? I can tell you what, if you looked in the medical tent on the evening, day one, Dragon's Back last year, it looked like some murder had gone on. There was, just, there was bodies lying around everywhere. Like there was, mash. Yeah, it was. There was like people lying in the ground being sick. There's people lying on the floor. And it was just, it was pretty bad. You know, some really, really destroyed people. Um, but I guess what I mean by you know like survival of the overnight camp is that if you are not really comfortable being uncomfortable in a a wet tent or a noisy tent and the camp life then that's a a significant added challenge to to the experience and you know something that you can get good at and the discipline of personal admin of getting into the camp getting wet clothes off getting dry clothes on eating you know doing some stretching eating again and all the things that you need to do preparing your kit for the next day you know it's a skill so i've worked on threshold events for a number okay. of years um mainly the 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 ride across bitten which is mm. a huge and 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 while i listen to your uh you did a brilliant podcast with ian corliss recently and while i was listening to that you're, you're kind of um discussion about this this rolling greenfield tent city that you move from place to place that evoked those memories for me and one of the things that i've always noticed on that working on the the physical therapy teams is that the people that work the hardest and i'm no that sounds wrong the people that struggle the most maybe have less time to do their personal admin in the evening yes, to, yes. so you get this cumulative effect of longer on the course less time to recover another long day the next day less time to recover and and you get people that arrive back in camp like middle of the afternoon 
sat around in a, in a, in a chair like, reading a Kindle or a book or something like that, and you get the people that stagger in at the end of the day and they've got to compress all of their personal shit into a small amount of time to get ready for the next day, and you see it day after day. Um, that's the tough one, right? The people that are borderline, just amazing. Well, we we actually recognise that at Dragon's Back, and the biggest we give like a huge dragon trophy to our male and female winners, and then we have another even bigger dragon trophy that we give to the last finisher who finishes ah. within, within the cutoffs, mm. and they're that's they're nice. the one who's been out on the course the They've longest, the longest, yeah, 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 and they've still finished. Yeah. And for sure, that is the hardest trophy to win because yeah. you're probably out twice as long as the winner, half as much time to recover. Yeah, I mean, you still... could almost say that they're winning the shortest recovery award. I guess. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> yeah, that's a good way of looking at it. <laughs> You'd have to be a special individual to want to to want to win that as well, wouldn't you? To to be. I don't know if anyone would set out to win that award, would they? I mean, yeah. you wouldn't start the race thinking, right? Check this out. I'm going to get two hours sleep a night. <laughs> well, I think the trouble the trouble is when you when you when you ultimately end up winning that trophy, you've been so close to the cutoffs every yeah. day. You're yeah. constantly at risk of being um, timed out. So yeah. it's a it's a very hard one to get right. <laughs> yeah. Do you have the same uh, like across those, these multi days? Do you have the same kind of protocol in terms of cutoff time, camp close time, start time the next day, or does it vary pretty, from? Place yeah, to no, place? pretty much. So. Um, uh, Dragon's Back, you can start at 6 a.m. Cape Wrath Ultra, it's a 7 a.m. start. Cape, Cape Wrath Ultra is an easier event and that's reflected in the start time. Our course closure time every night is 10 p.m. Um, and we all the cutoffs throughout the day just work back, assuming you start at the earliest start time and you are going to finish at the latest course closure time and then they just kind of pro rata changed and you know we've got a decade's worth of data now those those times are pretty good and when people miss a cutoff you know we know historically their chances of finishing on time are virtually zero mm. um, so and we also we our course closure time used to be 11 p.m and obviously whatever your course closure time is somebody always finishes later than that so when we were 11 p.m., we were still getting people for for various reasons finishing late, sometimes after midnight. And um, what we actually found when we look back at the data is, I mean, literally almost nobody who was finishing after 11 p.m. actually finished the complete course. So we decided to shift it back to 10 p.m. And the statistics showed that people getting in before 10 p.m., mm were actually, even though they were slower, they were finishing the, the whole event within the cutoffs. And we just felt that it was, there was a disproportionate amount of event resources going into a very small number of yeah. people who actually never finished the event. Got you. And since we've made that change, and we, that's a change we made this year through the events, sorry, and last year, um, that's, that has worked well. And the logistics have been a little smoother and, my 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 biggest concern from a safety issue is, you know, I worry about the runners on the course for sure. But what I worry about most is event crew being exhausted and driving home after a week of working on an event. Yeah. And having that 10 p.m. cutoff has made a big difference to how tired everybody is. So it, it feels like the right thing to do. Mm. 
So how does it work in the camp exactly? Do you get everything set up, ready for the runners to arrive, the, the food side of it, but tents, everything, or the runners carrying some of this stuff on them? No. So um, Dragon's Back, Cape Wrath, and Northern Traverse, because there's kind of very well-organized support points of the Northern Traverse where people can sleep at. But Dragon's Back, Cape Wrath, um, we transport the runners' kit for them. So all their overnight equipment sleeping bags you know spare clothes food for the running food we transport all of that on the hill they just have to take the minimum recommended kit or minimum mandatory kit the normal things waterproof spare jacket food for the day so they've got light bags basically um if you imagine the um first runner in the morning sets off dragons back about 6 a.m our fastest runners start last so they might leave as late as nine and between about nine and three p.m that entire camp everything is packed down um moves 50 miles down the country and is rebuilt and we try well we we are ready for the first runner to come in at a you know about three o'clock four o'clock and we always have chips and soup available for for finishers as soon as they come in they can i mean chips and soup we kate rath on this year on the fourth day the wet day we went through 180 kilograms of chips in one <laughs> afternoon <laughs> so this is like you know wow. runners all they want to do is eat a big plate of chips so that's like finish. half over half a kilo of chips per person if everyone's eating chips that's yes. a lot of chips yeah it's a lot of chips it's i mean it's an enormous quantity of food that we go through um there's then a, a separate meal. The, the chips and soup run all, all evening until the last finisher. There's also a separate kind of ring-fenced evening meal. Um, all the tents are put up for the competitors, so they have... Um, so you put their man. tents up for them? There are tents. So there's right. a big tented village of big oh, yeah. inflatable um, like family camping tents. Um, and, you know, as, as anyone who's been camping will know, if it's you know fine and dry, staying in the tent's not too bad. If it's wet and windy, given that the tents have packed every day, folded up wet and rebuilt, you know the tents it can be really kind of tough, tough experience. Compounds, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, definitely. And then you know there's a whole kind of medical facility where they're they're always busy, the medics with you know aches and pains and ouches. Um, and uh, there's a whole safety management thing. The logistics of just doing water, electricity. Um, Dragon's back this year for the first time. We're offering recharging facilities for participants who want to charge phones and GPSs and things like that. In the past, we've they've just had to bring a power bank. Um, and we thought we could solve that problem. But it's quite amazing how... Well, I can, a good example is... When we decided to do chips at the Dragon's Back some years ago, and you, we worked out what that would cost, it's like, well, we need. This is a the technological gen- chips we're talking about now, right? No, sorry, we're talking about um, potato chips. I was still on potato, right? Okay. Yeah, yeah, chi- <laughs> believe me, chips are the most important thing at these events. <laughs> All anyone talks about. But it's like, it seems really simple. We'll offer chips to, you know, 200 people. But then you think, well, we need a chip fryer. and need to do so many chips every, you know, five minutes. So the chip fryer needs to be this big. Um, we need this much power for the chip fryer, which actually means we need to upgrade the generator, um, which means we need a bigger distribution box. And the generator is so heavy now 
that it needs to be a dedicated vehicle to tow it. <laughs> and you just have these compound effects and you find that by providing chips, you've spent, I can't remember the number now, but it would have been like £10,000 more in just operational costs, just so you can do chips. Wow. Um, so some of the little changes you make have quite a profound effect across the events. Sometimes. Have you thought about like switching to mashed potato or... <laughs> Um, I'd like standard to, now that maybe yeah well yeah I'd like to see you tell the runners no, that no chips. Potato, not chips. <laughs> oh, um, so this year I, I was supposed to join you actually this year I was supposed to do GL3D but um, mm, circumstances okay. outside my control um, prevented me so um, kind of it, it, the GL3D the Great Lakes three days was was kind of pitched to me by some friends who have done it many times, uh, Matt Perry being one of them, okay. uh, Toby Lowe and the guys. And um, they pitched it to me as a, a great kind of um, introduction to that camp life, a, mm. a way of putting your toe in the water and saying, right, what's this all about? Do I like it? Do I want to do this on a bigger scale? Would, would that be a correct description? Yeah, it's a br- the GL3D is a brilliant kind of dry run for those expedition events. So for the for the listeners that don't know the it's the um uh, great lakeland three day that's an event that has got 20 years of history as well in the lake district three days of running um th- a whole range of different courses from very challenging actually kind of with you know 40 to 50k a day over the three days to um, our easiest course which we call the cafe course mm-hmm. which is in the region of kind of 18 to 20k a day it's low level it's through the valleys over a pass with a checkpoint in a cafe each day <laughs> it's the elevation isn't it that's the thing here so the yeah. distances are quite pedestrian mm. but the elevation is insane on some of them it is i mean yeah there's some there's some big numbers but like our expedition events the gl3d we transport people's bags mm. for them so you run with a light bag you bring your own tent on this event, so you've got a bit more personal space. But at the overnight camp, we have caterers, a bar, and you know, very relaxed atmosphere, pub quiz, you know, massage. People sat around the campfire on campfires, the, the, the yeah. hay bales and stuff. Yeah, it looks exactly. amazing. It's, much, it's great. It's much more like a little mini festival, um, but it does give you that sense of, hey, I'm doing three big days in the hill. I got to sleep in a tent and... You know, I'm largely responsible for myself. So it's a good test. And we do say to prospective, you know, dragon, particularly Dragon's Back participants, you really need to be able to come to the GL3D and do our long course for three days. And, okay, you'll find it hard, but you need to do to, – to really feel confident you can finish, you need to be coming to the GL3D and doing actually a fraction of that distance yeah. and going, yeah, cool, that was great. Is it a case of if if you can't do that, don't enter, really? No, no, because there's been plenty of people who have, um, through sheer force of determination and willpower, have, have finished Dragon's Back, but without being able to do GL3D as a as a warm up. But it's about. Oh, sorry, I meant more. Um, if if you found GL3D uncom- too uncomfortable, it's like probably not the Dragon's Back for you then. Uh, well, I, still, I, still no. I, okay, I you're probably going to make that I mean, decision yourself, aren't you? If you find it miserable camping for two or three days and running at the same time, you're not likely to have the appetite for seven days or whatever, are you? Having seen <laughs> the pictures, though, it looks pretty good. Um, yeah. 
I, I was very jealous when my friends posted everything up. <laughs> I think with something like Dragon's Back, I mean, I think some people, you know, they enjoy the camp life or they find it tolerable. Um, and I think for others, they don't enjoy the camp life, but they're so determined they want to run the event and experience the highs yeah. of the course and the adventure and the finishing the castle that they'll tolerate it. It's worth it. Do it. It's yeah. worth it. I don't think it's that bad. You know, I, I, I love being in a tent and... And I actually think the camaraderie, the relationships you form and with your tent mates are so strong and powerful, those bonds, because you're sharing this really visceral, challenging experience. It strips everybody raw, I think. Well, I've got yeah. friends that have done um, MDS who, from their tent mates, they formed friendships for life. Yeah, it's the same with Dragon's Back and Kate Rath. These are, we form and we see these absolute lifelong bonds being like forged in fire, <laughs> literally. Mm. <laughs> oh, it's, it's um, so yeah, GL3D, I hopefully will be there next year. Great, great. Um, and and so the Salomon, oh, although it's Salomon now, the Skyline Ring of Steel, um, that I remember and, and I was reminded of this recently, had a very interesting um, name when that first started. It got nicknamed, or it's AKA the Death Race, wasn't it? Oh, well, that, that was the Glencoe Skyline. That was the Glencoe Skyline. Yeah, pardon. so, um, yeah, Glencoe Skyline, the first edition was 2015. And when we, I mean, when we were conceptualizing that event, it was obvious it would be extremely challenging. And I was very inspired to bring the kind of sky running ethos to the uk kind of the norway thing but in scotland yeah so there's the the norway tromso sky race which um happens the year before us but um killian and emily who started the race same inspiration you know bringing sky running to their home territory um and kind of as we conceptualized and tested the Glencoe Skyline race route. I was working with Gary Thompson on that. Um, you know, we were aware we were creating something special and unique and and quite potentially dangerous. And we put a considerable amount of thought into how we managed that race. Um, but nevertheless, when, when the race was announced, um, there was an overwhelming negative response from kind of those old bearded men with red socks who you know, <laughs> walk in the hills of Scotland, <laughs> think they know best. Oh. Um, and, you know, they were strongly against this, you know, commercialization of the outdoors. And to be honest, I thought it was ridiculous because these are people who have might've been walking guides or journalists who have commercialized the outdoors their entire lives. Exactly. Um, but it's just, it was a change, which, you know, would made them feel a bit uncomfortable. And the mainstream media picked up on this after about a week of kind of negative press in the kind of specialist running media and climbing media. And all of a sudden, there was a page three headline in the uh, Sunday Mail, Glencoe Death Race. <laughs> <laughs> Which... In terms of your target audience, must have been like catnip. <laughs> it's like, yeah, wow, well, let me sign up. <laughs> there was an element of that, but I can tell you what, I was very relieved when um, we didn't fulfil the prophecy after the first bet, edition. Yeah. <laughs> oh, just mildly dangerous. Um, it is dangerous, but it goes back to my point. So the Glencoe Skyline is the only race where we actually vet people. We still turn down about 50% of the people who apply for an entry. 
um, everybody who applies for that race, they are individually checked out by a human who looks at their running and climbing CV and makes a decision about whether we think they're experienced enough. So the, the, the biggest safety measure we have at that event is the um, skill and experience of the participant. Mm. And there's lots of other things we do to, to mitigate risk. But it's back to that choice about having adventure, isn't it? And yeah. and back to my fundamental philosophy that, you know, actually, well, I've said we've talked about uncertainty outcome. I think the other element to that is risk. And you need genuine risk to have adventure. Um, if there's and the risk might just be being, being uncomfortable, it might be getting wet and cold, or in Glencoe Skyline, there is actually a risk of death. Um and that that is fairly extreme, but it is special as well. And for the right person with the right experience, that's that's appropriate. Mm-hmm. Um, and we can make lots of analogies about, you know, motor racing or I don't know, cycling as well. You know, there is risk with these events, and sometimes people are hurt or killed. But people don't say they shouldn't happen. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, everything in balance. <laughs> yeah. So for someone who wanted to maybe participate in one of your races for the first time, and bearing You're in mind that... talking about you, aren't you? <laughs> um, well, no, I've, I've, got, I've got my eyes on a couple of these and at some point in the future, but I'm kind of tied up with 100 milers at the moment. Um, but if someone, one of our listeners, let's say, and um, you know, a lot of our listeners are from Cornwall. You're from Cornwall yourself, Shane, um, yep. I just found out. Um, who aren't perhaps used to running up mountains or hiking up mountains what would you say would be the best race in your stable that to sort of initiate that that kind of journey into based on distance difficulty terrain elevation okay. all that kind of stuff well for, i mean for a trail runner the the easiest starting point is skyline scotland because we have a range of races that go from in distance 5 there's nine different races between 5 and 80 kilometers between you know relatively simple well, as simple as it can get trail running um to you know as technical as can get with the Glencoe skyline so there's a range for everything there and certainly that would give somebody a taste of um a slightly more adventurous take on trail and mountain running and even Glencoe sky sorry skyline scotland as an event you know it is it is a bit wild the whole thing um the great lake in three days a brilliant starting point for the multi-day because you can come with your friends you can take quite a lot of your creature comforts in your in your bag. Um, you know, there's a bar and cafes and all oh, those now things. Now we're talking the overnight camp. The bar's busy, <laughs> <laughs> so that's a really good way to dip your toe into the multi-day stuff. Um, and again, I you know I take it for granted now living in the Lake District that you know you run in these hills week in week out, but they are pretty special. And for that kind of wider audience across the UK. It's a fantastic weekend, um, long weekend in in the lakes. Yeah, it is. Um, I think it's easy to forget living down here in the south that in this country we have the lakes and we have, you know, Scotland, the Munros and everything. Mm. And it's just stunning, some of the scenery there. And you can, with it, if you don't get up there enough and see it, you forget that we, we have just some of the best scenery in Europe right there on the doorstep you know the British Isles aren't very big it's not that difficult to get there and when you do get up there you're just blown away by the beauty of it all yeah well I I generally my rule of thumb is the further north you go the better everything gets um and you know the kind of 
the northern half of Scotland, the Highlands. They are truly spectacular. They're they're a wonderful place to to run, to climb, to walk, to just to be in the outdoors. Always nice when you don't have the wee bitey things out there. <laughs> that that yeah, that's the the only problem with Scotland is the midges. Yeah, I was uh, I did um, the West Highland Way a few years ago with mm-hmm. some friends and my wife, and um, we were in the we caught a cab down from Fort William, uh, which is coincidentally the start of the uh, Cape Wrath Alter, obviously, and then on the radio and the cab back down to Glasgow, um, there was like a midge report, like the weather report. I knew you midge, ac- midge activity around Ayrshire today quite high. Um, it the was Scots, yeah, Scots are absolutely obsessed with them, eh? I mean, I've done, I've visited most of the distilleries in Scotland, probably sixty or seventy whiskey distilleries, and I reckon about fifty percent of the time, the distillers actually just want to talk about the midges, <laughs> not the whiskey or the or any of, any of that. It's like, you know, what the midges, what were the midges like where you just came from? <laughs> 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 well, they they do absolutely define um, the, your experience of being in Scotland. There's no doubt about that. Until you've experienced it, though, you really don't understand, do you? When you see this fog of black come up from the ground at mm-hmm. the right time of day, and yeah, uh, and yeah th- how they can be so small and cause so much havoc. Yeah, I mean, they can they can be terrible, but actually, also, you know, if a gentle breeze, they disappear mm. um, and. Uh, well, we've done four editions of Cape Wrath and we've only, so four times eight, what's that, 32 days of Cape Wrath. Um, and we've had three days of bad, really bad midges and the rest have been essentially midge-free. So, you know, the chances of really bad midges, I would say on average are low, but you certainly know about it when they're out. Oh, there's always Avon for those days when you have midges <laughs> as well. You Just move faster. Exactly. Yeah. Don't your, stop. Create your own breeze. Think of them like personal yeah. trainer. You know, they, <laughs> they actually looked at um, migratory habits of I'm gonna say deer, but it wasn't it, up in Canada. And they've re- the scientists basically mooses, said probably mooses. It's driven by um, the mosquitoes. They, they're basically trying to outrun the mosquitoes, so they're being driven along. This, this is how these migrations have started, partly um to get away from them so yeah there's there's actually we're emulating nature with yeah these ultras the multi-days you're just moving cape wrath ultra mid mid run mid run <laughs> um so uh just going through my my list um midgethon. Cape wrath is, that's what you call it <laughs> the cape wrath is eight days it starts in fort william and ends in cape wrath um mm. and it has a hundred I'm going to say 100 plus river river crossings, that's, something like that. Yeah, that's pretty intense. Yeah, so most of them are, are negligible streams. Um, they're streams. They might be a meter wide, but pretty much every single one of them, if it rains hard, can blow up and become uncrossable. And I think um, this year we saw it with some of our uh, stream river crossings becoming uncrossable and participants having to take some quite long like kilometer or so detours that's you know, what i wanted to know yeah it whether it's kind of um because obviously we get it a little bit on dartmoor every year with the 10 tour stuff that mm-hmm. goes on get some rainfall some microbursts and the route changes dramatically and and so the temptation i guess as a runner is always to can i go for it can i can i run and leap over that can i make it to the side um so how do you manage that 
Okay, that's a really good question. So I think when when people see like the cost of a Cape Wrath entry or a Dragon's Back entry, you know, they are not they're not cheap. They are like going on an all inclusive holiday. Um, but what you get, I would certainly argue, is tremendous value. And what's going on in the background is an enormous amount of professional work and planning. So River Crossing is a really great example. So um, when we were, again, conceptualising Cape Wrath Ultra, it was obvious that the river crossings would be potentially very problematic if the weather was poor. So um, we did two things. So first of all, we developed... Um, some very strong, clear and detailed guidance for participants about how and when to cross rivers. So we looked really hard for like a, a global standard on advice and it just doesn't exist. It didn't exist anyway. And there's lots of advice about, you know, hikers with big rucksacks, but it's different and nuanced for a runner with a tiny pack with no real provision to just stop and camp for the night, you know, they've either got to carry on or turn around and turning around. If you're into a 50 kilometer stage is possibly not viable either. It's game over, isn't it? It could be. So we developed some really detailed guidance on how and when to cross rivers. And that's on the Cape Wrath website. It's publicly available. I hope lots of other event organizers use it. Um, And the nub of it is, the risk is relative to your height and weight. So for, you know, a a tall, strong person, the risk is less to a small, slim, light person. Um, And the the take-home message is you never cross if you think there is a chance of being swept away. It's not like, oh, I might get get swept away. It's like at that point, you're not crossing because, I mean, I'm – I've, I'm a mountain rescue team member and I've done water rescue work. I'm a swift water rescue technician. You know, water is scary. And being in a, a river, being washed downstream, um, which I've done deliberately, it's a full-on experience. Um, you don't want to be doing that without the right clothing and equipment and backup. Um, at the same time, every single one of our river and stream cross- crossings has a contingency plan built into it. This is like a detailed written document of if this happens, we will do X, Y, and Z. If that happens, we will do X, Y, and Z. So, you know, there's a massive amount, and I mean, literally hundreds of hours of preparation and planning for eventualities, which are incredibly rare. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you look at the safety management planning for, for our events, they are hugely detailed and comprehensive. And when things what often happens is things do go slightly awry or slightly wrong, but there's so much contingency built into the event that we just slot into plan B, C, D, E. And and from the participants' experience, it just runs seamless and smoothly. So so that's like the safety side of it. But um, presumably there's a GPS for the route that takes you over rivers that might be streams on good days and rivers on bad days yes. and presumably therefore without bridges. So as a runner, what, what do I do if I get to a stream that's become a river and it's uncrossable? Do I go left? Do I go right? What's the so plan? The, okay. So the, the, what we say to the participants is first of all, we're watching you. So we'll, if you get to a, a river and become stationary, we will realize what's going on because it will also be raining. Um, if you look on the map or even just visually and you can see a bridge up or downstream, and sometimes that is actually an option, then obviously, obviously go, to go the for that. It's a safe yeah. way to cross. Um, 
if there is no obvious crossing point, then you go upstream and you keep going upstream and the river or stream will get narrower and narrower and narrower. And uh, eventually you will be able to cross and you might have to do a substantial detour. You might be talking two or three kilometer out and back trip to get over the stream or river. But I've, with that approach and, you know, a lot of my recce work on my races is done over the winter and like Cape Wrath, most of that work was done over the winter and I have never not been able to cross a river. Um, it might be difficult and there's things that you can do to team up with fellow participants and crossing as a group is like a much, much safer. Yeah. A chain can line abreast biggest person at the front and you, you know, hold on to the person in front of you and you will step kind of irregular steps across the water facing upstream you know you can actually cross water that initially might look impassable but actually with the right technique is is safe to cross and again that guidance article we have for the runners that's on the website and we do brief people about it as well mm. do you ever make um sort of last minute changes to the route based on weather conditions knowing that certain sections are going to be impassable for example yeah, we haven't had to, but we have masses of contingency plans about if that do this, if this do that. And actually, one of the most difficult things to deal with is um, thunder and lightning. So for Dragon's Back last year on day uh, four, um, the night before, so the end of day three, the forecast for the next day was like a 80, 90% chance of thunder and lightning. And I think one of the key things between operating as an amateur and op I mean, I'm not saying amateur is necessarily bad, but as a professional, so professionals make decisions based on forecast. So you look at the forecast and you plan accordingly. You don't wait until it starts thundering until you decide you're going to change something. So when as a professional, you see such a high chance of thunder the next day, and you know, like in South Wales, there's a well-established history of walkers and runners being killed by lightning in the Brecon Beacons. You have to do something about it. It's, it's negligent not to. So we overnight put in place our contingency plans for a lower level route on Dragon's Back. And we prepped our course team to actually flag many, many kilometres of route because we'd be going off the race map. Um, and the participants, well, well, they'd have no map, they'd have no GPX, so it would need marshalling, managing completely differently. And we did all of this work, and then we got up at like 4 a.m. to review the forecast, and it changed, and the risk <laughs> dropped to like 20%. And I kind of, you have to make these nuanced decisions, and it's like, ultimately, that decision comes all the way back to me, and I'm like, at, you know, 20%, do I go with the full course, or do I still put the contingency in? Am mm. I going to accept 20% risk? And I know if you ask the participants, they'll be like, oh, we'll be fine. Go get on with it. But, you know, they're not the one who has to stand up in a coroner's court and justify their actions if something goes to shit. <laughs> yeah. Uh, How do you... on that... so, sorry. Sorry, sorry go, go, Karen, continue. I'm just going to say on that occasion, we, we went with the full course, but that was risk assessed and considered and every choice that we made and decision we made was documented and written down and why we were doing it. How do you um, how do you manage communication in these kind of remote places? Presumably, the mobile phone signal ain't great. <laughs> yes, a lot a lot of the places we go, there is no mobile phone reception. So we have 
um, our own um, satellite internet system. So this is a big satellite dish that connects to a satellite and that gives us a very good kind of broadband style internet speed connection. So within an, an event village, um, the event team phones, essential phones have got Wi-Fi calling. So from, from my point of view with my personal phone, it's just like I've got full phone reception the whole time, albeit it's going through a satellite. Um, and then we also, we have our own VHF radio network with repeaters. We've got enough technical infrastructure now that we can create a, a wide area network over about 200 square kilometers of wow. mountainous terrain. And that can get deployed out and in again for a day as needed. And then the backbone of the emergency communications are satellite radios, which is fairly cutting edge technology. We have our own set of satellite radios and they they look like a normal like uh, VHF, UHF radio, but actually they're operating via satellite. So they work anywhere in the world. And there is a like bit of an in-mass-at kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. So they're they're very powerful tools, but they're also really expensive. You yeah. can't just dish them out to everybody. So the emergency response team, the, the response team we have at the events, they're, they're issued with those. So we know whatever happens, we can talk to our response team wherever they are and they can talk to us. And how, how, how big is the team for um, Cape Wrath? And, and I'd imagine it's similar sort of size for, for Dragon's Back. Yeah, similar size. So it, for Dragon's Back, I think we've got about 160 on the event team. Um, about half of them are volunteers and about half of them are professional staff. Um, within the volunteers, there's a fairly clear divide, actually. About uh, half of our volunteers are runners and we, we give a credit equal to the value of the race if you volunteer for us. And I'm absolutely determined that whilst um, Dragon's Back, Cape Wrath, you know, those are high-priced events, if you have got the time, you can essentially do the race for nothing. So I want I want the race to be accessible to a huge, wide variety of people, regardless of their kind of economic circumstances. Asking um, for an audience, are you looking for volunteers for upcoming <laughs> races? Uh, I think, uh, let me think. I not, uh, To be honest, I think we're pretty much sorted for our events this year. Probably need some more help at Skyline Scotland. I think Dragon's Back team is sorted. Um, but we're, we're always looking for good volunteers. And actually, the, the bizarre thing is the, the, the longer the race and the bigger the commitment, the more oversubscribed we are with volunteers. Hmm. So we're often turning down people. Um, uh, but yeah, so the, so half of our volunteers are runners and that's brilliant because they get it and they want to be there to, to understand the race and they're planning to come back. And they just bring this natural enthusiasm and knowledge to the event. And probably the other half of our volunteers, their hobby is volunteering. And, <laughs> you know, every, every weekend they're volunteering at another race and they just come to the event with so much experience and knowledge. It's just amazing. Well, I think that that's there's some really good insight into the races there, and and like especially you know, these aren't cheap races to enter, as you say, and no doubt a lot of people will be going on and having a look at you know what what they what they want to do, um, and but I think we've learned a lot about why it costs so much to mm. enter because the logistics of the whole thing, satellite phones, and 
setting up camps and you know 500 million kilos of chips chips right <laughs> yeah the world's most expensive chip tour yeah, yeah. <laughs> um it's amazing i'm i'm uh i'm well uh, you know they're definitely the, the dragon's back and spine are certainly sorry dragon's back and um kate rath is certainly on my hit list great um, at some point in the future um it's gonna happen and i might have a go at volunteering if there's if i can get a space on that yeah yeah definitely definitely well i'll, I'll send you a me- I, i'll check where we are and i'll send you i'll send you a message kind of off air about that yeah cool. <laughs> so if i if i can wrap up with one thing i know you're pushed for time um we as we're talking about pricing stuff, you do something. I, I I do some work with Patagonia, and 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 for for, for reasons that I'm uh, quite environmentally uh, aware, maybe or invested. But you guys, you donate one percent of your sales to environmental charities, which I think think is something that you don't shout loud enough about. If I'm honest, <laughs> do you know I was talking about that yesterday? Um, I was sat down with Innovate having a a meeting, and Innovate don't sponsor any of our races, but with um you know we, i know them well i actually used to mm. work for them and we were kind of every now and then sit down and have a chat and we were talking about that sustainability agenda and they have a an, an agenda and or a program and so do we and we were both saying you know we don't shout enough about what we do and so for for arrear events we from the very first day day one we committed to one percent for the planet and we have denoted one percent of our turnover and and more to grassroots organizations involved in environmental protection and i'm very proud of that and actually when you add up those numbers over over a decade of operating now it's a pretty substantial amount of money that we've Mm. donated um we're also we've run the business as a carbon neutral business for two years now and produced a sustainability report which is all public we've again literally in the last few days finalized all of the reports and findings from 2021 and we're going to publish that for the benefit of every event organizer in the uk because what we've done we have we have literally measured everything at every event we're talking like the amount of water used amount of food eaten uh, the amount of diesel used in generators the travel of participants and event crew and worked out the environmental footprint the co2e equivalent of everything going on in the entire business and we're going to publish all of that hopefully as a little bit of a blueprint for how framework for others yeah exactly exactly so um it's really interesting yeah and i mean and it should be no surprise to anybody but the biggest biggest contribution to um our carbon emissions is participant travel Mm. And part of what we've done in, we knew that anyway, from what we've done in the past, but now we have a number on it from 2021 events. What we're going to do, what we've always done is we've actually offset these on behalf of the participants. So these are scope three emissions, which most businesses don't even measure because they consider it to be out of their supply chain. We consider that actually participants traveling to our event, that is part of our huge part of it, isn't it? Yeah. So we've, we've offset that on behalf of our participants and that we talk, we're into tens of thousands of pounds of offsetting. Wow. Um, what what, what done, mechanism are you offsetting it? We're working with uh, two organizations, R Carbon and Equilibrium, and they um, support kind of UN verified offsetting schemes all around the world. So 
off the top of my head, I can't remember where most of our 2021 offsetting's gone, but it's in the report, which we're about to publish. Um, and uh, what was I going to say? Yeah, so what, again, what we've, how we've developed that is at the end of last year, we built into our shopping basket a carbon calculator so when you put in your home address, you're then asked how you intend to travel to the hmm. event, like public transport, you know, fly, boat, and then it will give you a rough estimate of your carbon footprint to attend. And then we ask participants to voluntarily offset. And what we found is that so far about 25 to 30% of every participant's offsetting voluntarily. Hmm. So again- Because they're aware, right? Because they're aware. So we're kind of just- facilitating a nudging and people make good decisions um so it's really powerful what you can do if you just make a few good choices well people want to do good don't they and they just need sometimes they need to be shown a, a way to do it and they can choose whether they do or whether they don't but it's it's important to kind of lead the way that's amazing that's re- that's actually well, really that's inspiring the first step, isn't it really yeah, we're, yeah. we're really excited about it and you know another really good thing we've done which we don't shout about is um, we ask runners when they enter the races whether they'd like to make a voluntary contribution to the local mountain rescue team. And it's like, you know, just round up your entry fee by a quid or something. Mm. And again, over the whole year, we're into tens of thousands of pounds of generation of charitable income here. Who wouldn't and- put money into that, though? <laughs> exactly. It's like it's karma insurance, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, I totally. Yeah. <laughs> um, but what we do then is if if we have a, a really serious incident that requires outside assistance from the local mountain rescue team is we'll give that money to that team. If we have no incidents, because normally we're able to deal with stuff in-house because we have this response team, hmm. we then divide the money that's raised by all of the local teams in the area of the event. But, you know, again, we're into year two of doing that and it's pretty significant sums of money that's starting to be generated. And yeah, I think although we are... We are a commercial organisation. I like to think we're doing things with integrity and and at a local level as well. You know, yeah. the benefits go into people year round using those spaces. Then, not just during the event. No, that's really that's cool. Right. I might have to have a, a, a side chat with you about some projects then that, that okay. suddenly sparked. Um, but that's brilliant. I know you've got to go, so thank you so much for your time. Uh, really appreciate that. Yeah, thank you. That was really interesting. Thank you. Um, cool. We'll see you in. In Wales or Scotland. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You're very welcome. Well, if you come to Cornwall, pop in. Okay, thank you. Brilliant. Thanks, Shane. Take care. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Trail and Error podcast. If you enjoyed it, don't forget to like, subscribe, and most important of all, share it with your friends and your family. Also, if you have any guest suggestions or suggestions for features that you would like to see on the Trail and Error podcast, please get in touch with us via our social media channels at trail underscore and underscore error underscore UK. It makes more sense when it's written down, I promise you. Oh, and we're on Facebook too. See you next time. Thanks for listening.